Well, good morning. I don't usually say that. I was just reflecting. Um, I'm going to be sharing God's word with you today, and this is the first time that I've done that on a Sunday morning when we started um, last, when I started last year, we were meeting in the afternoon in Emmanuel Episcopal. So yeah, we're going to rely on the Holy Spirit and a little bit of caffeine. <laughs> I'm excited. So my name is Mandy, if I haven't met you. I'm on staff here at Reality, and I'm excited to be sharing God's word today. Um, it's an honor to be able to share on the first Sunday of Advent. I actually had the honor of preaching uh, the first Sunday of Advent last year as well. So apparently this is a thing, um, but I love Christmas. Who doesn't? And I'm really looking forward to diving into the Christmas story with all of you. So before we begin, let me just open us in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for everything that the Christmas season reminds us of, Lord. We are grateful for the hope that we have in you. We are grateful for your humility in coming to earth as a helpless child. We are grateful that in the midst of darkness, you have brought a great light. We are grateful, Lord, that everything that, every longing of our hearts, every desire, every dream, every uh, wish that we could have for, for peace, for justice, for goodness to fill this world, Lord, that all of those things are wrapped up in you and you have begun the process of bringing that about in the world. So Lord, we just pray today as we listen to these things, as we meditate upon these things, that you would open our hearts to receive them, Lord. God, we know that it's only by you, by your Holy Spirit, that we can have the faith to believe these things, Lord. We know that the things that you say in your word can seem fantastical and difficult to wrap our minds around and beyond comprehension. So, Lord, we just pray that you would give us a posture of surrender to receive your word, to let it stir up our hearts to greater faith, to greater hope in you, Lord. We just pray that your presence would be with us today as we reflect upon one of the greatest things you've ever done for us, Lord, and that we would really be able to stand in awe of the wonder of the hope that we have in you. God, be with us this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so as we mentioned, today is the first Sunday of Advent, and as we talked about earlier, Advent is a season of preparation. And by preparation, we're not just talking about buying Christmas decorations before Halloween or like getting the play button ready on Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. Advent is the time when the church intentionally sets aside four Sundays just to prepare to celebrate the coming of our Savior and to look more deeply into the immensity of what God has done for us by sending Jesus into the world. And if we rush through the holiday season, we might miss what Advent has to teach us about the strange and wonderful ways God works in our lives. Advent helps us to slow down and stand in awe of it all. So it's fitting that we're calling our Advent sermon series Wonder Upon Wonder, because wonder is the feeling we should get when we pause and really look at the, the Christmas story in all of its glorious madness. Wonder can be defined as a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration, caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, or inexplicable. And pretty much everything about the life of Jesus from the very beginning is beautiful, unexpected, inexplicable, and worthy of admiration. So now traditionally, the four weeks of Advent correspond to four different themes. So there's love, joy, peace, and the topic I'll be focusing on today, which is hope. 
So to explore the wonder of the hope we have in Jesus, we're mainly going to look at Luke chapter one, which Rebecca just read, which is a story of Mary who receives the rather unexpected news that she is going to become the mother of the Messiah. But before we jump into the Gospel of Luke, I'd like to spend just a few minutes in the book of Isaiah to remind us of the context of the Christmas story. Actually, I'm going to move this up a little bit, too. There you go. All right, so um, the book of Isaiah. So the reason we're going to travel back in time a little bit is because at the heart of it, Advent is really about a promise. So in the Old Testament, we witness century after century of humanity's kind of downward spiral into sinfulness, pridefulness, and rebellion against the goodness of God. When given the choice, humanity just keeps choosing evil over good, selfishness over compassion, control over faith. And when we open the book of Isaiah, we find that Isaiah lives in a broken world, a world full of corrupt leaders, warring nations, hypocritical religion, and injustice toward the vulnerable. And in his prophecies, Isaiah calls out specifically those who call evil good and good evil, those who are wise in their own eyes, those who acquit the guilty for a bribe and who deprive the innocent of his right. But amid that brokenness, God speaks to Isaiah and begins to repeat his promise. And this is a promise that God has already made to Isaiah's ancestors, that even though humanity's sins are like scarlet stains, God will wash them white as snow. That one day, instead of war and violence, God will bring about universal peace. And in chapter 9, which we read, Isaiah receives this imagery from the Lord but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So the world is full of gloom and anguish, but into this dark world, God speaks his promise. He says, I am sending a light. And that light, as we learn from the book of Isaiah and from the other Old Testament prophets, will come in the form of a person, a messiah, a savior who will rid the world of darkness once and for all. So hundreds of years later, the arrival of this great light, the hope of Israel, will first be announced to a young woman named Mary. And I love Mary's story because it's the story of how hope visits the humble and the simple, how hope passes over prideful priests and power-hungry kings and arrives on the doorstep of someone whose heart trusts in God. So now the world that Mary lived in was also full of darkness. The Israel that she grew up in was struggling under foreign oppression. They were confused by the hypocrisy of their religious leaders, and they were longing for God's promise to finally be fulfilled, for the Messiah to finally arrive. In fact, in Mary's day, those who studied the scriptures and analyzed the prophecies and did all the fancy math had reason to believe that the Messiah was coming soon. But they were likely expecting something very different than what God had in mind. See, the God they were used to from the days of the Old Testament often appeared in cloud and thunder and fire. He was the God who parted the Red Sea. He was the God who brought down the walls of Jericho, the God who helped King David vanquish his enemies. Israel's religious leaders were likely not expecting El Shaddai, God Almighty, to first appear to a teenage girl in a small forgotten corner of Israel. So Mary is from Nazareth which scholars estimate was a town of somewhere between 500 to 2,000 people. And like most young women her age, she's preparing to be married. 
And like most Jews, she would have grown up learning the stories of God's faithfulness to her people, his promise to restore peace and prosperity to Israel. And the Gospel of Luke doesn't really tell us much about Mary in advance, but she seems to be leading a fairly ordinary life. Until one day, Mary is visited by an angel. And chances are, Mary is the only person she's ever known who has been visited by an angel, so she's not sure how to react. And the angel has apparently not read up on local culture or the latest slang, because the way he greets Mary makes her very uncomfortable. He says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And Mary doesn't respond. No one has ever spoken to her like this. So the angel can kind of tell that she's freaked out. So he says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now on the one hand, this is incredible news, because there's only one person who will ultimately inherit the throne of David and establish an eternal kingdom, and whose name just happens to mean God saves, and that's the Messiah. So the angel is unmistakably announcing that God has chosen this moment to fulfill his promise. The Savior is finally coming into the world. But on the other hand, this is terrifying news. Even if Mary has prayed for and even longed for the Savior to come, it's not super likely that she has ever thought, maybe my son will be the Messiah, especially because I'm not married yet. The Messiah is not supposed to be born to a currently unwed woman from a nothing town in unglamorous Galilee. So none of this is really adding up. Understandably, Mary would like a little more information about the logistics of all of this, so she asks, how will this be since I am a virgin? This is an interesting question because Mary is engaged to be married, so she could have assumed that maybe her firstborn with Joseph will become this great king. But something about this conversation with the angel makes her suspect that something unusual is going on, and she's trying to wrap her mind around it. So the angel explains. It's very simple. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. It's no big deal, right? The Holy Spirit, who, by the way, in the Old Testament, typically only came upon kings and prophets and significant leaders in Israel's history, he's going to miraculously create a child who will be the son of God. And commentators say that the language used here in this announcement should remind us of Genesis 1, when the Holy Spirit hovered over the void and created the world out of nothingness. Or Exodus uh, uh, 40, (laughs) I really can't read the number 4. Exodus 40, when Israel first built the tabernacle and the glory of God descended upon it to dwell among his people. So it's the language of creation, the language of divine encounter, the language of miracles. This angelic announcement is a major fork in the road for Mary's faith. How will she respond? It's easy to imagine that she could be feeling excited, overwhelmed, and anxious all at once. Because when the angel departs, he leaves behind dozens of unanswered questions and what-ifs that could begin racing through Mary's mind. For instance, what will my family say when I tell them what the angel said? What if they don't believe me? What will Joseph say? What if he breaks off our engagement? Will I have to raise this baby alone? 
What if people accuse me of being unfaithful? What if they say I broke the law and try me as an adulteress? What I think is the biggest question of all, what if I don't have what it takes to raise this extraordinary child? Even if I felt ready to become a mother, how can I be a mother to a child who is holy, who is somehow the son of God? And the questions wouldn't stop with the birth of Jesus because more trials would come into Mary's life later down the road. There's no room at the inn. My water just broke. What do we do now? King Herod will kill my son if he finds him. Where will we go? How will we get the money to start a new life somewhere that we don't even know anyone? And after they flee to Egypt, will we ever make our way back home to Israel? All of these what-ifs would be reasonable. God's calling upon Mary's life seems impossible. It is bigger than she can handle. But at the same time, the word that God has just spoken over her life is that he is finally answering the long-awaited hopes of her people. So how do you hold those two things in tension? How do you continue to hope in God when the road before you is actually overwhelming, when all you can see ahead are unanswered questions and mountains that you're not equipped to climb? So our very human tendency to ask these what-if questions isn't necessarily a problem. The problem is when we only listen to the what-ifs that speak from a place of fear. What if this doesn't work out? What if everyone abandons me? What if I don't have what it takes and I mess this up? Think about the what-ifs that have come up in your own life. What if I invest in this career and it isn't everything I thought it would be? What if I invest in this community and I still end up feeling alone? What if I pray and I pray for the thing my heart longs for and God doesn't come through for me? It's all too easy to let our fears become fortune tellers that only predict disaster in our lives. Because in the economy of fear, we will never have enough. We will always come up short. Because these fearful what-ifs always write God out of the picture. In the stories our fears tell us, there are no miracles, there are no pleasant surprises, there's no grace for our weakness, and there's no God who loves us deeply and who can redeem anything. The story of fear does not leave room for the gospel. Because the gospel is good news. It's the story of how God shows up, how God intervenes, how God comes through on his promises. Even when the wait is long and the road ahead is dark, the gospel says, God will be your light. He will show you the way. And we don't know which of these what-ifs, if any, Mary entertained, these fears that I just listed, but each one corresponds to a very real challenge that was facing her. But I want us to consider What would these what-if questions look like from the perspective of hope? Because hope has its own list of what-ifs, but they sound very different. What if God provides the support I need? What if an angel visits Joseph too, and he believes in God's promise and decides to walk this hard road with me? What if people do believe that my child is from the Holy Spirit, What if shepherds and foreign astrologers come to worship him and strengthen my faith? What if prophets lift him up and celebrate him and speak blessing over his life? What if it's part of God's plan for my child to be born in a manger so that generations to come will understand just how much God was willing to humble himself for our sake so that the lowly and the poor would believe they have a place in God's kingdom? 
What if God provides unexpected financial gifts, myrrh and frankincense and gold and safe passage for us to escape to Egypt? And when the time is right, what if another angel appears to my husband to call us back home? What if, in spite of my limitations and utter humanness, my son grows into the man he was meant to be? who brings healing to everyone he touches and opens the way of salvation for all humankind? What if all God's promises come true in the end? These what-ifs are so much harder to imagine than the fear-filled scary ones. But these are the what-ifs that actually came true in Mary's life. God provided God worked miracles. God spoke clearly when he needed to, and he paved the path in unseen ways when he needed to. And the what-ifs that run through our minds sometimes need to be shaped by the story of the gospel. What if God shows up in my hour of need? What if he works the impossible in answer to my prayers? What if there's no reason to be afraid? At the end of the day, God accomplished exactly what he spoke to Mary. And if Mary had only fixated on a future that she could imagine and predict, she likely would not have been able to keep walking forward, to step into this impossible calling on her life. But Mary held space in her heart for the mystery and the bigness of God's ways, for the wonder of it all, for the incomprehensibility of how God manages to work all things together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Mary was called. She obeyed. And so God made a way. This is the nature of hope. Hope is inherently about trusting in a future that is so different from our current reality that it's difficult to imagine how that future could even come about. Hope occupies the realm of the invisible and asks us to live as if God's promises are true, even if we don't quite understand how they'll work. So when the angel speaks to Mary, He gives her two reassurances to bolster her hope. The first is that her relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So people looked at Elizabeth's old age and her childlessness, and they called her barren. But God didn't see it that way. It turns out that Elizabeth's long years of waiting were fertile ground for God to work a miracle and to remind people that the same God who visited Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah and countless women throughout the past who maybe had given up hope, he was still working today. The second hope that the angel gives is this beautiful encouragement. For nothing will be impossible with God. And this isn't quite the same as saying that everything we imagine will happen. It's more like saying, even if you can't imagine a way forward, God can make a way. And when he does, it will be the kind of thing that only God could do. It's looking at the obstacles in front of you and saying, this is not the end of the story because God is not done working yet. So in my life, in your life, when you're facing what seems like a giant stone wall where there is no way forward, hope is like saying to yourself, God can make a door. If God is calling me to the other side of this insurmountable obstacle, then he has to make a door because there's no other way. And our tendency towards self-reliance will tempt us to give up and walk away or try to make a door on our own and just exhaust ourselves like chipping away at the stone. But hope reminds us that a life of faith is dependent on God. So when we can't see the way forward, we don't have to reason our way out of it. We only have to look to him. 
And that's what I love about Mary's response to the angel, to the mystery of God's promise. Her reply is so beautiful because it's so simple. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. If God says this is what's going to happen, he has to make a way. So when I've taught here on Sundays in the past, I've usually shared some story from my life that relates to the message, but as as I was preparing this message on hope, it felt different. And I think the reason is that in this season, the one I'm walking in right now, I have actively been learning how to hold on to hope. There are things I've prayed about even for years and years and years where I still can't see how God is working just yet. There are things that I feel called to work toward now, things that I long to see happen, even in our church. But I know that for any of these things to move forward, God's going to have to provide what we don't currently have. He's going to have to take a wall and make a door. So as I reflected on this season, I realized that instead of sharing a story from the past, I'd like to look to the future and share what I think it looks like to move ahead in hope. Because in our walks with God, I'm realizing that most parts of our spiritual lives actually require practice, which involves letting scripture shape our thoughts and, and leading into the power of the Holy Spirit and also actively practicing living things out in our daily lives together as a community. Joy is something we can practice. Peace is something we can practice. Love is something we can practice. What does it look like for us to practice hope? So I have three suggestions, like the number three, based on my time sitting in scripture and reflecting on how hope has played out in my life. So first, hope means expanding our spiritual imagination. Second, hope means waiting on God. And third, hope means looking to a greater promise. So first, hope means expanding our spiritual imagination. For Mary to faithfully walk the path God had set before her, she couldn't just rely on her own cleverness or read a self-help book. There's no manual titled How to Raise the Messiah. That's not a thing. So Mary needed to find her strength and to find her rest in a God whose ways were bigger than her ways. She needed to believe that God could show up for her in ways that were so extraordinary that she couldn't possibly envision them until they happened. In his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes this beautiful prayer for spiritual strength, and he prays that the church would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. And he prays this to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, which refers to Jesus. Now we might wonder if maybe Paul just didn't proofread this letter, and that's why he's saying confusing things about knowing a love that can't be known and asking for something that's beyond what we could ask. But I think he's just trying to describe something that's difficult to put into words, but that everyone who follows God will experience, which is that the way God's love shows up in our lives is mysterious and inscrutable and difficult to describe and unexpected. None of us have ever seen God. I have never seen Jesus. But the way that Jesus has shown up in my time of need, the way he's answered my prayers in seemingly impossible ways, how he's comforted my heart, and drawn me into his presence, and ministered to me with the hope of the gospel, he is more real to me than my own flesh 
And I can't really explain how I know him. But I'm sure of him. And it's beautiful and mysterious. And our hope in God is the same. We don't know how God is going to make things work. How he's going to take a world full of violence, injustice, suffering, and darkness and transform it into something that looks like less like earth and more like heaven. But if anyone can do it, he can. And he gives us evidence throughout history of the way that he overcomes, of the way that he does the impossible, of the way that he restores the hope of his people, even if they've been waiting with very little hope for a very long time. Hope means living in wonder with the anticipation of what is God going to do next. And it's childlike in its simplicity, but it's freeing to be able to say, I don't have to know exactly the roadmap, exactly the way, because I follow Jesus, and he is the way. So hope means expanding our spiritual imagination, and hope means waiting on God. If I'm being honest, I usually equate the word waiting with suffering, like a never-ending line at the DMV, or the RMV, because we're in Massachusetts. Um, (laughs) So strange to be still. But if I let hope expand my spiritual imagination, I begin to realize that if I decide in advance that waiting is going to be horrible and exhausting and probably wreck my faith, then I haven't created space for waiting to be worth it, for it to be meaningful and even satisfying, again, in very unexpected ways. In the Old Testament, the verb used to mean hope also means to wait for or to look eagerly for. Hope waits for God to move. Hope eagerly looks for God to change the impossible into our actual reality. And this isn't just passive. It's an attentiveness to what God will do. It's preparing our hearts to watch him perform a miracle. Think about it. Who were the people who recognized the newborn Jesus as the coming Messiah? There's the Magi who had been searching the night sky, waiting for God to provide a star as a sign. There was Simeon and Anna, who had been at the temple praying and waiting for Israel's deliverance. There was Elizabeth, who had hidden herself away to ponder the miracle that God had worked in her womb and to wait and see what was next. Those who were waiting on God were the first to see him fulfill his promise. So in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says, Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, We wait for it with patience. So Paul assumes that as we hope, God will cultivate patience in us. As we wait, we learn to let go of our need for control and our desire to have everything figured out. As we wait, we learn to surrender to a God who is as mysterious as the wind, who comes and goes in ways that we can't quite understand. As we wait, maybe, surprisingly, our hope will actually grow as we discover that God is able to meet us in our waiting. Hope means waiting on God. And lastly, hope means looking to a greater promise. So one thing that blows me away about scripture is that if you start in Genesis and just kind of keep reading, God's promises keep getting more and more elaborate. So if God intended to like manage expectations, you know, kind of make sure that he didn't overpromise and underdeliver, he seems to be setting himself up for failure because instead he keeps talking about these glorious plans to bring everlasting peace and spiritual transformation and full restoration of justice to wipe every tear from every eye and vanquish death forever. And in Revelation, he just caps it all by saying, Behold, I am making all things new. 
we need to remember this. When the current darkness in our world or in our own hearts becomes discouraging, when our hope grows weak because God doesn't work in ways that make sense to us, our hope as Christians is not merely that things will get somewhat better or that we'll survive a less than ideal situation. Our hope is in the renewal of the world. Our hope is in a God who takes what seems barren and brings life. Our hope is in a God whose love is fearless and relentless in pursuing us. And this is the Christmas story. It's a celebration of the fact that God has already sent the light. The sun is already rising, and it's only a matter of time before the darkness disappears completely. Christmas is the embodiment of the truth that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's a reminder that hope has come to us in the person of Jesus. So church, this Christmas, don't let the season pass you by. In a rush of shopping sales and social events and all the other things, let the wonder of what God has done for us fill your hearts. Remember that Advent is about a promise, a promise that at last the long, dark night is coming to an end, that God's plan of salvation is unfolding before our very eyes and in our own hearts, that our hope is not in vain. So at the end of Luke chapter 1, there's this beautiful prophecy given, and it's actually spoken over Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, but it reminds us of the mission of the Messiah, which is to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Because of the tender mercy of our God, we have knowledge of salvation, the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus, the light of the world, has come, and our hope is alive in him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are, as AJ Enter said, the light of the world. Lord, we are thankful that the restoration and the renewal of all things does not depend on us. It is not limited by our brokenness. It is not limited by our fear. It is not limited by our doubt. It is coming as certainly as the sun will rise, God. We thank you that you have done it all. We thank you that you have come for us. We thank you that you have humbled yourself. We thank you that you have shown your great love for us by coming as a child, by living a life full of healing and mercy and blessing, by dying for us, and by overcoming everything that burdens us, sin and death and darkness. You have overcome it forever. God, help our hope to be renewed in this season. Help it to come alive as we meditate upon you and what you have done. God, we pray that when we look to the word, when we lift up our prayers to you, when we talk about you in community, when we celebrate Christmas together, that we would be so tangibly reminded that our hope has come, that it is present that it is filling us, that it is available, that we don't have to give in to the dark and the sad and the fearful what-ifs. We can believe in the what-if that did come true, God, that you have accomplished the renewal of the world. And we look forward, Jesus, 
to the way that you will bring that about. So Lord, help us to surrender to you. Help us to surrender to your plans. Help us to surrender to your leading. Help us to be guided by your love, your generosity, your mercy, your kindness, Lord. Help us to trust in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.